Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. We are part of the drama of human life, but we're not sure of the plot and we don't know our lines. How do we know what to do when one of the acts of the drama is missing? Join us for the message, The Missing Act. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, we are all part of the drama of human life, but we're sometimes not sure of the plot. We don't always know our lines. How do we know that what we do, how do we know what to do when one of the acts is missing? So that's going to be our message a little bit later on the service called the missing act. If you haven't done so already, we invite you to make an offering to the uh, ministry of this church. You can do that through our website, tumcd.org, through our church center app, or of course just by writing a check and putting it in the offering plate. And there's a QR code there that will take you directly to our website. This week's scripture shall start with Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Listen now to the words of God. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. We shall continue now in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Ministers and pastors that are involved in campus ministry at colleges and universities report that 
One of the life issues for which people often have, young adults are often most concerned with is, how will I know when I've found the person that God wants me to marry? How, how am I going to recognize my future husband or wife? And it's a very important question. When and to whom and under what circumstances a person marries will set the course for the remainder of their life, for better or for worse. College students' anxieties over issues of marriage can put the campus minister in, let's say, some awkward positions. I remember I read the story of one young man who sought the counsel from his campus minister, and the student came into the minister's office and said that God had told him to marry his girlfriend. Now, the student was absolutely convinced that this was the will of God. The only problem was that when he proposed, his girlfriend said she wasn't sure. And he continued to propose, and she continued to be unsure. So the student asked the campus minister, how can I convince my girlfriend that getting married is the will of God? Well, the minister looked at the young man and with all the tenderness and kindness that he could muster, replied, son, if God wanted the two of you to get married, God would have told both of you. <laughs> Crestfallen, the young man left the office and he and his girlfriend broke up a few weeks later. I think that was a very tough conversation for both of them. And I actually, I think the minister actually gave a very good response. Much better than another story where I read that a different minister took it upon himself to tell a young man in his congregation, the Holy Spirit has instructed me to tell you to end your relationship with your girlfriend immediately. Now, I don't know how that story ended. I only hope that the young man did not break up with his girlfriend just because that minister told him to. Now, as much as I may joke that it would be great if people would just do what I say. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> but in reality, it'd be kind of creepy. I mean, yet in some churches, there are congregants that are told in some churches that a part of being a good Christian it is to submit to the authority of the senior pastor. In which, in these cases, I might add, those pastors are always men in these congregations. Well, part of my job as a pastor is not to tell you what to do or what I think is God's will for you. Instead, my job as a pastor is to empower and enable you to discern the will of God and the movements of the Holy Spirit for yourself. Because you can't become mature in Christ unless you have a deep and abiding relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. You cannot become mature in Christ riding on someone else's spiritual coattails, even if they are the senior pastor. Well, how then can we discern God's will in our lives? I've re I really like, and I've said this more than once, I love the slogan of our sister denomination, the United Church of Christ, their slogan is, God is still speaking. But that still begs the question, exactly how does God speak? As one of my parishioners in my last church said, only half-jokingly to a colleague, how could I download God's computer printout for my life? <laughs> and I'm thinking, if only it were that easy. <laughs> William Shakespeare 
is considered the greatest playwright in the history of the English language. In his work, along with the King James Bible, they set the standard for how modern English is spoken. Now, most professors of literature teach their students that Shakespeare constructed his plays into, five, into a five-act structure. Now, suppose that historians were to find a long-lost play of Shakespeare's. Only in this play, one of the acts is missing. And furthermore, in this play, it appeared that there were actually six acts originally. Well, they found the first four acts, and they found the sixth and the final act, but the fifth act was missing. So if you were one of these literature scholars, how would you go about reconstructing this fifth act so that the play could be performed? Well, first of all, you would very carefully study the acts that you do have. Uh, you would then compare these acts with Shakespeare's other works. You would ask for the help of many Shakespeare scholars you would study what kind of vocabulary he used, what kind of sentence structure, what kind of themes did Shakespeare come to again and again, and how did he structure the plot in his plays? Well, then you might come together and then compare your findings with others, and you try to reach some sort of consensus about what this missing act might look like so that you could perform it together. But there may be disagreements. There may be passionate disagreements. Each of us would be convinced that we knew the content of the missing act. Unfortunately, we can never know because we can't ask Shakespeare because he's been dead for 400 years. So trying to reconstruct Shakespeare's missing act can be a little like trying to discern the will of God. Creation itself, I think, can be thought of as this great and grand drama. The curtain opens with creation as God's command brings forth both light and then life. And then the curtain closes with all of God's people and indeed creation itself then living in, in perfect communion with God in the New Jerusalem there at the end of the book of Revelation. So we already have the first four acts. We can think of act one as creation itself, as God calls the universe into being yet humans choose to disregard God's command. In Act 2, God reaches out to start the story of salvation by calling Abraham and Sarah and then the entire nation of Israel into a sacred covenant. And yet, God's people choose to disregard God's commands. In Act 3, God enters the world in the person of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the good news of God's love and yet the world chooses to crucify God. In Act 4, Christ is, resurrection, is resurrected and then raises up the church as the body of Christ to proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth. Okay, now that was Act 4. Now in Act 6, Christ returns to earth, evil is vanquished, history is consummated, and we spend an eternity walking those, those streets of gold found in the New Jerusalem. Well, did you notice Act 5 is missing? And the thing is, Act 5 is where we live right now. Right now, we don't know exactly how the story is supposed to unfold. We've seen the faithfulness of God in the past, and we know that in the end that God wins. 
But what are we supposed to do right now? What is God's will for us now? And so we find ourselves living in this missing act. And when we're searching for the missing act of Shakespeare's play, first we, we said that we would carefully study the acts that we already had, look at his other, all of his writings. I think the same is true for God's will. Let's, let's carefully study what it is that we do have. Because the thing is, we already know a lot about the will of God, perhaps more than we actually realize. Because most of God's will has already been revealed to us in Acts 1 through 4, and then in Acts 6 as we find them in Scripture. We know that it's the will of God for us to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know it's the will of God to love our neighbor as ourselves. God's given us 10 commandments that help us flesh out what it means to love God and to love neighbor. And then we've been given this beautiful witness of the Hebrew prophets that I think is best summarized in the very famous verse from the prophet Micah. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Then if that weren't enough, we have Jesus Christ. And everything about Jesus' life, birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension, everything Jesus ever did by word and deed reveals to us the will of God. We know that we're supposed to be part of the body of Christ, proclaiming the good news by our words and our lives, just as Jesus did. We know we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, and that we're supposed to be out in the world advancing the kingdom and the reign of God. And I love how John Wesley puts this. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Now, I realize that discerning God's will for our lives goes beyond just deciding what is good and right and ethical, but it certainly begins there. If we know something is not good and right and ethical, then we know that it's not the will of God. It's never going to be okay to uh, rob a bank or bully a coworker or uh, engage in some sort of a racist rant. But that still leaves a lot of ground not covered. Because we all want to ask the question, what is God's will for my life? But I think that perhaps that's the wrong question. I said earlier that creation could be thought of as a grand drama with God as both kind of the producer and the director. Yet in this case, this drama is unscripted. Think about the world of theater. In the world of theater, there's a type of acting called improvisation, or improv for short. And in improv, actors are given general stage directions about their characters and the situation in which they find themselves, but otherwise they're free to improvise or to make up the scene as they go along. The actors decide in the moment what lines they will say, what actions they'll perform. Each actor has to appropriately respond to their fellow actors, even if they don't know ahead of time what the other actors are going to do or say. This type of acting often, if you've ever watched improv theater, sometimes it can be hilarious. Um, to do improv well, the actors have to manage their own anxiety. They have to, be, to, allow, they have to allow their spontaneous thoughts to emerge. They have to let go of their inhibitions 
and just let those creative juices flow. Likewise, discerning and following God's will is something like improv theater. We have been given a good amount of material to guide us, but ultimately, we're making up life as we go along. At any one moment, we cannot guess with absolute certainty what the other actors are going to do. We can't predict what action will take place because life is going to be full of surprises. But wouldn't it be easier if life did have a script? Maybe then we wouldn't, maybe that might be true, but then we would not have free will. It seems like God wants us to improvise our lives because God has graciously given us the gift of freedom. And as much as we might sometimes want to have a scripted life, the reality is that there is more than one way that we can live out our lives that will still be in harmony with God's will. Because living out the will of God is often more about the way we conduct our lives day to day than it is necessarily about reaching a specific destination. Well, one method that we can use to discern God's will is already familiar to you. You can ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Now, I know that many have criticized this method as being way too simplistic, and it is certainly not the only method you should use. But I still actually believe it can be quite helpful. Because I think the key to looking to Jesus' life, though, as a guide to discerning God's will, is to not take the question too literally. Because Jesus was many things, but that includes being an individual. He was the son of a carpenter living in the Roman-occupied territory of Galilee 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived in a situation that is fundamentally different from ours on multiple levels. So simply asking what Jesus do might not always be helpful. For example, if we're trying to discern how God would have us use modern technology or the internet or social media, then looking to Jesus' life may not yield a clear-cut answer because obviously Jesus never dealt with such things. And also, as the Messiah, Jesus had a vastly different life calling than you and I do. We've received our own callings. So I think much of doing God's will is learning how to think and to act like Jesus would if Jesus were you living in your situation. So what would Jesus do if instead of being a first century carpenter called to be the Messiah, say Jesus was, say, a middle-aged white woman living in the 21st century and called to be a pastor. I think this is what Paul meant in Philippians when he said, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, as we talked about last week in last week's scripture passage. Therefore, I think the key to discerning God's will is to cultivate within ourselves to have the mind of Christ. And again, this is the process of sanctification in which we spoke of last week. Sanctifying grace is that grace and the presence of the Holy Spirit that's working within our hearts now, transforming us into that full image of God in which we were created and to work in us until we do have that same mind that was in Christ Jesus. So after asking the question of what would Jesus do if he were in our place, we can then use the wonderful tools of the Wesleyan quadrilateral to guide us further along to discerning God's will. And remember, in the Methodist Church, the Wesleyan Quadrilateral is scripture, 
Scription is scripture and tradition melded together. It's scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Now, as we said earlier, immersing ourselves in scripture to read Acts 1 through 4 and Acts 6, that's where we want to start. And then we look at the tradition of the church. What has the church taught throughout the centuries? Then we look to our own experiences and the experiences of our community. What can we learn from our past, both from our good decisions and our bad decisions? And even better yet, can we learn from other people's mistakes before we make them ourselves? I do think we would, we would save ourselves a lot of heartache if we could learn, to, uh, if we could learn from other people's mistakes. That's, that's, by the way, one of the advantages of being the last child. I, I could see all the ways my older siblings screwed up, and I knew not what to do, or I knew better how to get away with it, depending on how you look at it. Finally, then, we use reason to weigh all these options together in our lives. And reasoning things out with others, say, like in a church, helps tremendously. And of course, throughout this process, we pray and we pray and we pray again. When we're living into the will of God, we will experience a deep sense of peace, perhaps even joy, in spite of whatever it is that we may be facing. Now, this isn't to be confused with a false or a superficial peace, because sometimes we can feel a false or superficial peace if somehow we just manage to never have conflicts, or we just procrastinate on hard or difficult decisions because we don't want to face how difficult that might be. No, this is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. We're able to experience this deep type of peace no matter what may be going on then in our personal lives. Our lives are an improv performance in the grand drama of creation. God has given us guidelines, but no script, because we are living in the missing act. But if you think about it, the people of God who came before us were also improvising. Now we know how the story went, how history unfolded. But the people who we read about in the Bible, as they were living their lives, they did not know how history was going to unfold. Because like us, they had to proceed into the future, just holding on to the, their faith in God and following that leading of the Holy Spirit. I've, I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again because I think it really applies here. Toward the end of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it says that all of the dead are raised to face judgment. And there in the 20th chapter, it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also, another book was opened, the book of life. And the, de the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. Now, when we picture uh, the book of life, if you're like me, what I imagine is this big, old, leather-bound book. And inside are this list of names of who gets into heaven. But what if instead, the book of life isn't a list of names? What if the book of life is a storybook? It's the whole story of creation, including this love affair between God and humankind. And so then these questions are before us. Will we endeavor 
than to weave our lives into the grand narrative of God's design for redemption and salvation? Will we let the Holy Spirit sanctify our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our souls so that we have the mind of Christ? And will we live out the life of Jesus in our own lives? Someday, when that book of life is opened, there we're gonna discover the missing fifth act because that's gonna be the story of our lives, interwoven with the story of God's redemption. So there is no script for the book of life. God has given us freedom and it's often up to us to decide when it is a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to keep or a time to throw away, or a time to mourn, or a time to dance. But as Paul says, keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So may the God of peace be with us all. Amen. Now receive this benediction. There is a time for everything under heaven. There's a time to gather together and a time to disperse. So go from this place and love the Holy Spirit and then share that love with everyone you encounter. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Join us again next Sunday as we continue our sermon series, The Holy Spirit, God on Fire. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.